You're listening to Tarot Talk, and I'm your host, Holly Ramey. I'm going to serve you some practical magic and give you tips and tools to bring the mystical into your everyday life. Hey everyone, I just wanted to hop on and let you know that the upcoming interview with Virginia is absolutely amazing. However, we did have a little bit of technological difficulty and the audio on my end is a little bit staticky in parts. So I did my best to edit it and cut out unnecessary speaking on my part. Luckily, Virginia sounds pretty clear. I wanted to keep this episode for you because I believe that the information is incredible. So I apologize in advance for any shoddy audio and I hope that you can still listen and glean a lot of great information from this interview. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tarot Talk. I'm your host, Holly Ramey, and I'm super excited to be sitting down today with my friend, Virginia Richardson. Virginia is the founder of Your Life Edit. It's a company dedicated to helping others simplify their lives and live a healthy lifestyle. She also works as an end-of-life doula, and I'm really excited to get into more of that. Welcome, Virginia. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I thought you could start just by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and just your background and any events that kind of led you into the path of holistic health and nutrition and then eventually working as a doula. Okay. Well, obviously lots of things led me to that, but I think for today's um, discussion, I'll start with the end of life doula work. So I grew up in a small town where um, my great grandmother and great aunts lived down the street from me and they were really close. I was close to them. They all three lived till they were over a hundred years old. So as a child, I got to see the stages of life. So I saw them move to a nursing home that was like, you know, a house. And um, I was had to go visit them at least twice a week. And part of being in that home, I was able to see like elderly people. And then I was able to see them on their deathbed. So for me, being around older people became like this really special um, time for me. I just really gravitated to it. So even like at 12 for an after-school job, I would go, you know, do little things for them for like $5 an hour, you know? And so um, I became, that was my place for volunteering anytime that I could um, just go and visit with them And then it became a really natural process to see them age and to see them from aging to dying. So when I um, graduated college and moved to Nashville, I guess about 20 years ago, I went, I lived near downtown and I walked up to a live hospice thinking it was like a nursing home. And I quickly learned that hospice was a little bit different than a nursing home. And I became a, you know, a volunteer there. 
and just fell in love with being with people at end of life. Um, at that time, you know, you had people in the home that weren't just, just dying. They were maybe just in palliative care. So I'd get to build a relationship with them. And then, um, I'd get to see them as they progressed, um, and then died. And at that time too, you had like people with AIDS still that were there dying. You don't see that as much now. Um, so I bonded to that. Um, I still had a finance degree, still went the corporate route. And then after I had my daughter, Lila, I just realized um, that nothing I could do ever fulfilled me um, with money and bonuses and, you know, finance environment like being a doula. I wanted to be, or, or just at the time, I wasn't a certified end of life doula. I was just a volunteer at hospice. Um, it's the same thing really, but (laughs) I didn't have the terminology around it. So, um, when I heard about doulas, I just knew that was my calling. So, um, I was certified probably about five years ago, um, cause Lila's almost six. It was right after she was born. And, um, you know, I think from learning to be with people at the end of life and learning that it's not just elderly people, who have sometimes, you know, a three-month life sentence, it made me just really feel that people needed to really live, like simplify their lives and fully live their lives. Like seeing people end of life really was a motivation to me to be like, there's so much that doesn't matter. Um, so that's where I started your life edit for just like really trying to help women in general, like look at their nutrition so that they felt good, had the energy to live better, but also to like less is more like declutter your life, which not just in physical possessions, but also just in, you know, commitments, um, you know, saying no more, having the power and the strength to say no more. Um, so that's kind of evolved. Um, I think now I'm, I'm like circled back around to, more the end of life doula work, um, and less of the, you know, busy work that I was doing with your life edit. Um, so that's where I am now. Yeah. Gosh, I love that story. I love that at such a young age, you had such a close connection to elderly people. And I don't know, in our culture that puts so much emphasis on youth and on like, and really idolizes youth as like trying to look young and be young forever. Um, And we don't see that kind of like wisdom and reverence for the crone years and for aging we see in other cultures and like, you know, coming from the witchy background, like the, you know, the triple goddess of like the maiden, the mother and the crone. It's like, you know, we, those crone years are like such important years for our our culture in general has abandoned our elderly people. Um, And I think I became passionate about that. I wanted to be in the nursing homes because some of the nursing homes were in such bad conditions and these people were just left and they were lonely. And there's so many people in the world that are lonely. And if we could just get the message out there, well, if you're lonely, there's someone else in the nursing home that's lonely, like get out there and visit them. Um, you, you can adopt a grandmother, you can adopt, you know, um, 
a grandfather. You really can go and and learn so much. I mean, there's so much wisdom in our elders, and a lot of um, cultures understand that. But I think American culture has abandoned that. And so part, I mean, part of doula work is like, you know, this person who's dying, making sure that like if they have things they can document, like to to help document their wisdom, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, I remember from a young age, like, cause I was around them, like it never was gross to me, you know, like aging in this country, it's like people don't feel comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Like touch the hand of someone that's, you know, old and fragile and maybe, you know, they need their face cleaned or maybe they need, you know, the food cleaned off their blouse, like that's what we should be doing for our elderly. Like we should be there, you know, assisting them and making them feel dignified. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, some of us do, but then a lot of us, we put them in homes and we just, you know, that's out of sight, out of mind. And it's, it's a sad, it's sad, you know, even with Lila, like I try to take her to the nursing home and walk around with her because like these people love kids Mm. And people aren't taking kids. And it's like, she needs to see that because and someone looks old and fragile, they're still safe, mm. you know? And she needs to learn to communicate with them, smile, you know, speak to them, look at them in the eye. Like, that's the way you treat your elders, you know? And I, I don't really see kids in the nursing homes. And I always, or even in hospice, you know, don't, like, they don't, people don't bring their kids around people dying, and then it becomes taboo for people to be dying. And, and I'm like, the main thing you can do for a kid is to see, let them see the person dying. Mm. You know, kids can handle it. And you're setting them up for being able to understand that it's a natural process the rest of their life. So, <clears throat> you know, I think as a doula, one of my main things is not just doing the work, but also just talking about the work, right? Talking about end of life and dying and making sure that it's not a taboo subject, you know? That's so, what you just said about um, having Lila, your daughter, that there are older people aging and that they are fragile and they look different, but that they're still safe. Like that really hit me because like, if she can see that they are safe, then she won't grow up with that fear of aging and and like, wow, how powerful that would be. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, I I, I think probably, I mean, you're probably going to ask me this, like, you know, people hear end of life doula and sometimes I feel like they don't understand exactly what that means, but so do you want me to go into exactly yeah, that was how the next I, question is like, yeah, what yeah. exactly is an end so of life? I think, so you could call, it's not just, you know, some people say, I don't think the term has, we know what a doula is, right? A doula is, um, is, is a Greek word and it means a servant. So, you know, everyone understands birth doulas. Birth doula is um, you hire that person so you can have a birth plan. I just so you interviewed can feel, a birth doula for my last <clears throat> podcast. So that you can have you can have some control over a situation that you really don't have any control over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you do have control over. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of unknowns. So, 
Um, but your wishes can be known and out there. And then, um, so it's a servant. The doula is there to serve the person um, who's birthing. And in the end of life, the same thing, but you can call it a deaf doula. You can call it a soul midwife. Um, they call it in England a soul midwife a lot. I love that. Um, or just end of life. I think end of life describes it best because it's the best way to be a doula is to, as soon as someone's diagnosed with a terminal illness to come in and be with them in an intimate way up until, you know, they're transitioning into the death up until that, you know, maybe even after that you have for some doulas even do, um, you know, work with home health not home health, but, um, home funeral guides. Hmm. So, um, you know, we're not medical professionals, but we're there to really help people with their, mental and spiritual needs to turn to make end of life something where we um, turn it more into a sacred moment and we turn it back to a natural process of, you know, so many times in America in general, when people die, they're put in hospitals, it's cold, it's sterile. We're trying to make them fight to the last minute most doula's goal is to make everything and work with the family to say, you know, dying is a natural part of life. And like you have the choice that you can die in your home, not connected to machines, not surrounded by, you know, the unknown surrounded by your family, your loved ones, you know, music, candles, whatever it is that that person is important to the person. Um, and so what we do is we go in and we really meet with the person and we say, you do have some control at your end of life and we can make a death plan now. But I think our main goal and what I find myself doing more and more is just being the person who can, can, can just talk about death with the, with the person dying, cannot keep it this big elephant in the room, like the secret. You know, like death doesn't have to be a scary thing. It can be a sacred, beautiful thing. And um, making the family feel comfortable with death, making the family feel like they can talk about it, that they can hold the person dying, you know. Um, So we really just explain death and, you know, what death looks like at the end of life. um, And a lot of times we do work with home health care or with hospice to come in for the medical side, but um, it really is just coming up with a sacred plan for end of life. Um, I always say there's a difference between being alive and living. Mm. And I say that to the person and I'm always like, and I'll do this now. Like this is one of my main things I say in this moment right now, you've been, let's just say diagnosed with a form of cancer where you had three months, three to six months to live. So when I sit down with a person dying, who usually is more open if they've asked me to come anyway, right? So they're open to talking about it. My, but sometimes I do this as a volunteer. So I don't, if they haven't asked me, I don't, I don't, you know, make them come to terms with it. And I don't, bring all this up but 
Um, what are your mental, physical, and spiritual needs right now in this moment when you have three more three months to live? And we write those down and we see if we can accomplish those in the three months. Mm. But I always tell people, let's talk to the doctor about statistics and really look at this because at what point does fighting to stay alive, is it just keeping you alive, but it's not allowing you to live? Mm. So I would rather people who, let's just say I'm with someone right now, use this out, she has glioblastoma, it's an aggressive brain tumor. We had already made a plan that at the point where she was getting really sick doing radiation and chemo, we know with her diagnosis, she's not going to live past six months. So extending her life one month so that she feels horrible every day in treatment and has to leave her house, which is very taxing for her because this frontal lobe tumor, any, everything overstimulates you. At what point do we tell the doctor no more so that she can live a quality? So it's quality over quantity is always my goal, right? Mm. So the doctors still really fight that in our healthcare system. They believe that that's a failure on their part if they stop giving treatment. Mm. And me as the advocate of the patient always tells them this is the patient's wish and it has nothing to do with the doctor. It's not a failure. Um, We want her to be at peace, even if it means she lives less days, like less being less sick and being more present with her loved ones is more important than a treatment that makes her where she can't be. So that's always my goal. So, but it really takes like a health advocate in our system right now. And a lot of times I'm that person. Yeah. Um, that's similar to a birth doula, right? Is that yeah. advocating for the wishes of the, the patient, which sometimes right. get forgotten in the, in the delivery room is like, <laughs> we do things this way. And it's like, uh. yeah. And what I find a lot of times I'm the mediator with the family because the family is so emotionally wrapped up in it, they can't always see clearly the needs of the patient. Yeah. So also, I mean, just think about this. Most of us, when we're feeling really bad, do you know how it is when you're feeling bad and you're at home and you're in like your little sanctuary and you don't even want to see friends or talk to friends or you don't even want to see your loved ones, but like if it was a stranger who came in your home, who was really at peace with which was was going on and just could provide you comfort and just create a sacred holding, like just hold that space for you. Do you see how that would make you feel? Mm. Like, it's like, it's just a different thing when you're not family and you're just going in there and you're not asking anything of them. They can feel my emotions, which aren't, aren't there. I'm not going in there needing anything from them. I'm yeah. going in there to try to hold sacred space so they can go inside themselves and confront what's happening to them. So you have friends who come and visitors who come and family comes, but they just talk the whole time or, you know, they're just, and it's all from a place of love. Mm-hmm. But my goal with people is to put them in, make them feel like they're in a little cocoon when I'm near them And that this is their time. They can speak to me if they want to speak to me, but I don't really speak to them. So it's really not a lot of words that are being spoken. It 
it's more of holding the space for them so that they can practice their death before they die. So because there's a lot that you have to work out, you know, like I always say at the very end, when it's time for someone to transition that your work here is done, Mm. you're forgiven, you're loved, you know, you can go in peace. But I don't think that our system sets, we don't give people that ability. We don't give people that space. Mm. You know, it's like, I always will go into a hospital room and I'll tell family and friends, why don't y'all just give the patient about four hours alone in the room and just see, see what happens. See if they call for you. See if they need you. Like people need, they need, they need to be alone. Um, and, you know, you know this, I know this, but if we don't practice, um, you, you would call it something else because I'm an end-of-life dual. I call it practicing death daily. So my spiritual work is, for me, is practicing death. So if I don't go inward and have self-reflection and contemplation and quiet time and meditation, then I don't feel like I'm prepared for my death. And if I feel like I can help people prepare for their deaths, I have to be able to prepare for my own death. But if you live a life where you never stop and you never go inward and you never contemplate and you never learn how to be truly alone and at peace with that, then most likely in death, that's not going to happen. That was actually going to be my next question. Cause it's like <laughs> well, two things. One, like, in yoga, we practice savasana, which is pose, which is, you know, the pose of practicing death. And it's exactly what you said. It's stillness. It's quiet. You lay down. You don't move. <laughs> you stay quiet and you stay still. Uh, tra- you know, traditionally, it was done for long periods of time, like 10, 20, 30 minutes. Now it's done for like one in most practice. But it's the same work of that inner work and making looking inward and going inward for a sense of peace and um, reckoning with yourself and your own shadow. So what that leads into my next question is like, how do you connect to your own spirituality and how do you find your own sense of solace um, so that you can hold this really intense intimate space for someone? Well, Like I said, I feel like I was called to this as a kid. So as a kid, we're very, it's pretty pure and innocent, the things we're called to, right? Um, Religion, spirituality, I think it's at its purest state as a child, right? Um, And I always go back to that, um, that this was a calling when I was still in that, that, that phase of life. But because I believe in the transition because I believe in a God and I believe in angels and I believe in that the other side is another experience um, and not a bad one. I think it gives me peace. So I don't grieve people dying. Now I'm talking about people I'm working with. Obviously if it's a loved one, I grieve that um, someone I'm close to, but I don't grieve the people I work with dying. I look at it as a celebration. It's just the next, it's just their next life. Right. 
I do a lot of angel card readings. I sing to the angels. Um, they comfort me a lot. I, you know, pray to, to God. Um, and, and I feel the presence of them when someone's transitioning. So I, it's for me, it's peaceful because I feel the peace hmm. of the transition. And I really believe that people's work is done and they are forgiven when they transition to the other side. So I guess I guess I, I couldn't do the work if I didn't fully believe in that. Um, and I do, so it doesn't scare me in any way. So, um, and I think the main thing, it's never scared me mm-hmm. ever since, you know, for as long as I can remember. And I think that's why I can do it. It's not a, it's, it's a, it's a celebration in my, you know, for me, um, it's just the next stage. It's just the circle life. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a few things. Um, have you had both? Like, have you had the really like intense, like, at some accident happened, um, or has it always been like, always like? Well, so I haven't had where I'm in like because those people. If you're dying from a tragedy, it's different than when you've had time to you know the end's coming, right? Pair, yeah. You impair. Um, I haven't had the experience where I'm in the hospital with someone that hasn't had time to prepare and it's tragic. But I've had in hospice, like in the facility, um, which is a very peaceful place, but still not the home. It's still a peaceful place. I've had where, where there's very tragic reasons why people are dying or you know, mothers losing their kids or kids losing their mothers at young ages. And... um. So, but in those experiences, um, there still becomes a calm, a peace before someone dies. I've never experienced where there's not that. Um, I did experience one time where someone was really religious, um, like Christianity, um, in a way that they were really afraid of hell and damnation, and they were really agitated and scared. Um, and when something like that happens and it's like a trauma from something that they've been raised in um, and something they truly believe in, um, I, I will have like a chaplain come in, a minister, who, or maybe like a preacher that's associated with their denomination. And, and that's who they would trust even over me that they're okay, you know? So, um, you know, it's I always said, you know, I, I advocate quality over quantity, but I get as a mother to a young child, I fight tooth and nail to stay alive as long as I could to be with her. Mm -hmm. So I never don't support people if their wish is to continue fighting. Um, I just want them to be aware when the fighting, I want to have the conversation with them when the doctors are encouraging them to still do treatment but the end, the end results the same, right? Um, doctors a lot of times will talk treatment, 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 but they won't just really talk about, but you're dying. Mm-hmm. And people need, they need to have hope, but they need to have hope even in death. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not just have hope in, in living. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something I focus on. Um, I still think that 
chaplains and even some nurses have gone through the doula program. So there's people in hospitals when tragic things are happening that can hold space, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and there needs to be more of that. Yeah. Even the the hospice nurses that were present um, in the situation I was in were so amazing and just so comfortable. And so, like you said, the difference between people who are there to hold space and Mm -hmm. family who's there with their emotions and their attachments and their egos and just like everything is so cool. Um, And then the nurses were like these beautiful, just like space holders that were just there to make her comfortable and feel safe and taken care of. Um, and it was such a yeah, hospice nurses are special. They, they've chosen that to be a nurse in that space. Um, but they're also trained about death and yeah. they're not, and it's something that they're trained to embrace and aware talk about and not just continue fighting. So they're, I always tell people, don't call hospice. Hospice doesn't mean you're dying right now. You can have up to six months of life and already be in hospice care. So I always encourage people to get hospice care as soon as you stop your treatment. Mm -hmm. Because the hospice care is going to be better than, you know, the um, oncology care or whatever it is that you're, the treatment care. So Hospice nurses are just different and they, they work within your home. So you can have a family member as a caretaker, but hospice is coming in regularly to make sure, you know, you're not in pain and, and a lot of that. So, and you're comfortable. So I wanted to ask you, cause you said that, you know, when you do connect to um, your own spirituality and it through prayer and through connecting to angels and not being afraid um, because you know and you trust that the person is going to cross over and that this is going to be like a continuation of the soul. Um, I was wondering what your, your opinions on that are like, like do people cross over? What comes next? Do you feel that shift um, when that happens? Well, the truth is none of us know for sure. Right. But we, um, I think faith is a powerful thing. Um, I always feel as if there is an opening when someone is about to die. Um, you know, it in their body language, um, the breathing tells me a lot about if they're close to dying. And I, feel an energetic shift and it feel, and this is just the way I feel it as if the, the veil between our life here and our next life is very thin during that time. And a lot of times you'll see people, they'll talk to their loved ones that have passed away. They'll even say they see angels. Now, um, science and medical will try to discredit that and just be like, well, they're hallucinating. Are there, you know, it's something else. But mo- mo- most of the time when people start dying and they're in that active stage, they're actually not heavy medi- medicated. They're not in pain anymore. They've lost that sensation to feel that. So it is, I believe they really are connecting to their ancestors on the other side. And I encourage that with people. 
I encourage the family to acknowledge it and to support it. If they're talking to ancestors on the other side, I usually call in ancestors to come be with them and help them with their transition. Um, I've always, and maybe because I've been in the hospital or hospice so much or in this space, I've always had this very strong connection and belief in the angels um, because I do think this is the, is the angels' work to help with the transition. Um, and I feel a presence of a just just this peaceful energy. Um, so I can explain it too. So um, normally what I do is like healing, healing touch, mm. which I'm not touching the body, but just energetically, you know, just, just helping um, just open up their energy to it, but also just, just to sit there and call in the angels. And it doesn't have to be something I'm doing out loud, but through prayer, um, and ritual, it is creating a ritual. And I think that's, that's one of our main goals as doulas to create a ritual at the end of life. So it's, it's a silent ritual, but, um, sometimes it's not, sometimes we do sing. It just depends on the patient and you know what they've asked for, but call in people to sing. Maybe if they want like gospel music, um, singing, like music is one of the last thing that people lose like being able to remember music and lyrics like even people with like dementia or um tumors like brain tumors and stuff you'll notice they've lost their short-term memory they've lost a lot of their ability to um communicate but they'll remember songs Mm. so i just always said music's healing but um I encourage to the family to embrace that space so a lot of times the family will see them actually dying and no one's telling them, you know what, you can, you, they're not hooked up anymore to any machines or anything. Like you can hold their hand. Um, you can lay next to them in the bed. Like you're not going to hurt them by touching them. And it's healing to be able to, to give that person their last hug or to be right next to them. Um, so I think it's just encouraging the family too that um, this is a natural part of dying, the breathing, um, the coming in and out, the talking to ancestors, all that is something to embrace. That's a really, That's a really such just a beautiful practice in general of being able to create a safe and beautiful space to yeah. live this life, just like we would want to create a safe and beautiful space to enter. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, a time when, this was normal, a time when we lived in like villages, a time when um, you birth was a normal part of life. You saw your mother's birth. You might see your auntie's birth. You might see, you know, your family members birthing and then the same with dying. Um, And that it was just, it was all, everyone was there together. Um, Right. People used to have their visitations in their homes. You know, the body would be there for people to come into the parlor and visit, and then they'd be buried on their land. Mm -hmm. Um, It was all a ritual that helped people grieve, right? Mm -hmm. And you take away those end-of-life rituals, and people don't know how to grieve, and then that comes back as, you know, pain and trauma. Yeah. So um, I always encourage people to get a washcloth and after they've passed away, like 
wash their face, wash their hands, you know, to use that as a act of saying goodbye, mm-hmm. um, just sit with the body for a while, not have the hospital rush them off if they're the hospital or not even call anyone. Um, if it's in the home, you know, I have the son, you know, you don't have to call an ambulance when someone's dying in your home. You know, you don't, they can die there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, do not resuscitate. Like all that stuff is really important to sign too. If like, you're like, I, I'm going to die anyway. Yeah. So I don't, we keep taking me to the hospital and, you know, bring me back to life. So I think there's just, all those are really important things to think about before you have to make those decisions. What, why do you think there was such a big shift in our culture? Um, from having these death rituals to kind of making it taboo and, and putting it in in the hospitals, in the funeral homes, uh, taking it away from us? Well, I think it was, um, oh, I hope I'm not messing this up. I think it was Lincoln who, when he was killed, they the first time they did embalming and they took his body across the, you know, you know, the United States for everyone to see. And then it became like this elite. If you had money, of course you would embalm your, the body and you would put them in like a fancy cemetery and stuff. So it became like the status thing, like how well you bury your loved one. Well, it was taking away the fact of there's no reason to embalm a body. Yeah. You don't have to do that. It's not good for the environment. Even no. It's not even as good for the environment to cremate a body as it is just to bury them naturally in the ground. Mm. So, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Larksburg Conservancy and John Christian Pfeiffer runs that. It's a natural burial ground near Nashville that's beautiful. Um, it's worth checking out. Okay. And he'll do home, fu- so he'll do home funerals. So, you know, you, you're sitting there with, say it's a pine natural coffin and you can, it's in your home and you're, you know, I've seen it where like all the grandkids sign it and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's way less expensive and it's, you're conserving the land by using your body. So it's like, you're giving back to the world as you leave the world, you know? So there's just, and I'm just saying like ceremony has been taken out of our culture. Yeah. You know, it's like, you look at like native American Indians or, you know, some of the older indigenous tribes are still in this country, which there's not a lot, but they still have rituals. Yeah. And those rituals are what unite us, right? And I think that there should be a, you know, ritual for grieving and there there should be more about it. I don't know if it happened during the war or what, that, you know, people just, you've got to be tough and just like move on with it. Mm-hmm. And it just got to be this like taboo thing to grieve or to talk about death. And um, I think we're coming back to like this place where we know that if you don't always say you should grieve for as long and as much as you love the person, right? So like as much as you loved them, you should grieve them. And there's no like time limit on that. I think like taking grief away from people really hurts. You know, we had like, a guy who lost his mother one time and he's like, I didn't cry. I haven't cried. So we did, me and a group of women did a grief ceremony with him where he was in the middle and we literally encouraged him to grieve, Mm. you know? And like, sometimes I'll, I've done plenty of grief ceremonies where it's like, we go around the room and it's like, everyone has something to grieve. 
Yeah. Like it, maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's, you know, a child being ill, or maybe it's just like the world or, you know, um, distress, but there's always, there's always a reason to grieve. And I think, you know, there's a, there's also a place for like having ceremonies around grieving. So I'm not really sure what exactly started where our country just lost those rituals around death. Mm -hmm. Um, the same, I think it's just the medical community and the way we progressed and the same around birth, you know? So I think we're taking that back. We've we've learned that as a culture, we've lost a lot of our soul connection by taking away those rituals. Yeah. So, um, I love all of this so much. And I wish that I knew that grief <laughs> ceremonies were a thing. Um, 10 years ago when I, when I lost my brother and had no idea how to grieve yeah. the of a 22-year-old person. Um, well, you know, <laughs> that's the thing. A lot of times when we have these grief ceremonies, it's someone like has had something like that and they're just now being able to grieve. I mean, like we wail and then we scream, like we let all that out and it's, it's a beautiful healing process. I mean, obviously you have to do it in a safe environment. Um, and there's gotta be a lot of people that are just there just to hold space, but not grieve. Um, but yeah, there, there's something that we do. Um, yeah. just a lot of the stuff is just not mainstream yet. You know, it's just, people just aren't quite sure about it. If you, It makes sense to people, but they just haven't embraced it yet. Yeah. Um, are there any like steps or resources if someone is really interested in like how to prepare for a more natural death? Um, like what would you suggest even if for like a, a person, a young, healthy person? Like, yeah. So, um, there is a resource and I need to send you the link, but it's the five, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it is. It's a free legal document that helps someone walk through their wishes at end of life. It's okay. legal in the state of Tennessee. Um, the five wishes is what it's called. Okay. Um, you can start there. I think I tell everyone, go ahead, make sure you have a will and you have your advanced directives and who would make those decisions for you. Like have that stuff documented. Um, the, the Conscious Dying Institute out in Boulder, where I was certified, um, we do a three months to live coaching program. And we could, you know, I can do that with anyone at any time where we practice dying in a way. And you have three months, say, you know, you just pretend as if you were dying right now, how you would, what your priorities physically, spiritually, and mentally would be. Wow. And we work through those for three months and it's like the don't wait till you're dying to kind of just think those things through, um, which they change at different stages of your life, obviously. Um, but the main thing that people can do to prepare for their death is develop a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. The most peace you'll gain at the end of life is to trust Trust yourself and trust your spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Learn how to be alone, self-reflect, contemplate. Um, because 
no one, I always say no one dies alone physically if they don't want to, but you're always alone, you know? So learn, learn what that is for you. Um, learn who your guides are, who, learn who you're, you know, who you feel most connected to. So, um, I think that's the main thing you can do yeah. to practice yeah. your death is to practice your spiritual life while you're living. Mm-hmm. And do you have any resources for what you spoke about in the beginning as far as like connecting with elderly and um, supporting our elders? Yeah. Okay. So COVID has made things obviously super difficult. So we're pretend like we're not in the world of COVID. Okay. I tell people, what is the most convenient nursing home to where you live? And most time, if you just walk into the front desk, you can ask about their volunteer program. But they say, I do not have a volunteer program. Then you say, well, you know, I just feel really like I'd like to come and just visit with people here. And do you know anyone that would like a visitor Mm. that likes to talk that you think would feel comforted by me? So you can do that. I mean, some are more lenient than others. Some you have to do a little volunteer program, which means normally you do get like a little background check and just, you know, they just check you out. But once you have that volunteer, now hospice is a also a great place. They need volunteers. Um, and of course you can, you have to go through a little volunteer program with hospice, but um, every single hospice has a volunteer program because it's part of the Medicare um, payment plan. I think they have to have so many volunteers. So um, yeah, I always say that's a, the first place to start. It's just by going and volunteering and doing the work and seeing, getting more and more comfortable. Um, even if you want, even if being in a life doula sounds like something you're drawn to, I always say start first by just volunteering and being there. And then the doula stuff will come after, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh. Thank you so much for those resources. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, it felt really powerful to me. I had chills for a lot of it, um, which is always how I know that what you're saying is important. To well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Where can the listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram at Your Life Edit. Um, I don't do as much of the doula stuff on there because a lot of it's confidentiality. I just can't share a lot of it, but I do try to live, you know, put stuff in there. Um, but it's still a great way to keep in touch with me. Um, or you can reach out to me at Virginia at yourlifeedit.com. Um, my website, Your Life Edit, is all up. So Perfect. Thank you so much. For Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, everyone, welcome to the second portion of the show. I'm going to give you a forecast, a tarot forecast for the full moon in Pisces. So this forecast will cover the upcoming full moon on Tuesday, the 1st, and the following week, so the weeks that the moon is waning. 
Before we jump right into that, I'm going to give you a few announcements. I have a full moon ceremony for this upcoming full moon. And we're really going to focus on rest, relaxation, and release, right? So whenever the moon is full, I focus on what we are releasing. What are we letting go of? What is being illuminated during this full moon? What is being amplified? And what can we shed and let go of? I think of the light of the full moon shedding and illuminating the things that maybe were in the dark before, that maybe we were not able to see. So really bringing light illumination to our shadow parts or to things that we just had kind of like in our blind spot or that we had put on the back burner in our lives. And with these full moon ceremonies, they're all digital now and will be for the foreseeable future. And what we do is we come together via Zoom so you can join from anywhere. And we talk a little bit about the astrology of the moon, what the Pisces energy is about, what the full moon energy is about. We set our intentions for what we are ready to let go of and release. And then we focus on divine feminine practices that bring us into the relaxation, to the parasympathetic nervous system, and allow us to release physical, mental, emotional tension. And then we um, do a little Reiki. I offer you guys Reiki healing. We pull some tarot cards. And yeah, it's a really beautiful time to just sit in community and just tap into your intuition and allow some space for yourself to rest and relax. So that is 6.30 central time on Tuesday the 1st. I'd love to have you. Link is in the show notes or just go to my website to sign up. I'm also starting to develop and will be launching next month my group mentorship program. So I'm really excited. I'm developing this right now. And I wanted to offer you all something that was a little less of a time commitment and also a monetary commitment for those on a budget during this time. So um, it's just like my one-on-one mentorship program except we're going to do it together in community. And this mentorship program is going to be all about uniting the mind, the body, the spirit, and practicing tools in each area to really help integrate, empower, and just bring some of these divine feminine practices into your everyday life and make them really practical and really applicable to you. And these are things that I've been studying for the last two years and things that I practices that I have been using to heal from so many different um, 
things in my life. And, you know, I, I used to be really type A and really, uh, by nature, I am very masculine in my chart, very fire, very air. And so these practices have helped me to balance out these masculine energies within myself, but also that are just taught to us through patriarchal culture and society and capitalism. And they can give us a really unbalanced way of living in the world when we're always looking at like how to be productive and what we can do and really trying to prove ourselves through action and never taking time for rest and replenishment and creativity and intuition. And so all of the practices that we will cover in this group mentorship program will be things that I have learned to embrace within myself, the divine feminine, the wild feminine energy. Um, and like I said, we'll do that on a physical level, an emotional, a mental, and a spiritual level. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'll be announcing it on my website and on Instagram next month. All right, you guys, so let's dive into the forecast now. This is a full moon in Pisces. Pisces is a water sign. It's the last sign on the astrological wheel. And so whenever I think of Pisces, I think of, you know, this sign that has this deep, deep wisdom that kind of carries a little bit of every sign that came before it. And it is an ending, a closure in a way. Um, it really connects us not only to our emotion and our intuition and our sense of creativity and this divine feminine energy I was just speaking about, but it also connects us to maybe our past lives, um, maybe our past karma. And it's really like this deep oceanic energy, like what would it be like to really drag down on the ocean floor? What would you find there? It takes us deep into the depths of our own psyche. Okay, now Pisces people tend to be very sensitive, very intuitive, very dreamlike. They're okay in the realm of the unconscious. And so this full moon will bring us into this unconscious realm, this divine feminine realm. The card that I pulled for us for the theme of this full moon is the Empress. So such a beautiful, beautiful divine feminine card. But the Empress works on the tangible plane, on the earth plane. She is all about creation and fertility. She is all about intuition, but applying it through the heart to our tangible world. And so I implore you to look at anything that you feel that you are ready to create for this full moon. Anything that you feel like you have been thinking about or working on any ideas, any projects, any um, anything that you have been kind of working with in concept, this is a really beautiful moon to kind of birth it out into the world or to tap into some deep feminine practices that could help you to initiate some of that work. So whether this is meditation or getting outside in nature 
or, you know, doing some kind of dream work or yin practices um, or cooking or baking, this Empress energy is going to help us bring out our creative and intuitive gifts. And I'm pulling this card with Mirror Mirror, which is an interesting card from the Liminal Space deck. And it is about seeing a clear reflection. And this reminds me of relationships. And so like, where can we bring this Empress energy into our relationships? Where can we be mothering and nurturing and creative? And what are we seeing reflected back to us in others, in our work? Um, we don't just have relationships with people, right? We have relationships with money, relationships with our job, relationships with our career, relationship to our creativity. And so let's dive into that a little bit. Let's see what we want to create, how we're creating it, and how it's being reflected back to us in the world, how we see beauty and abundance and fertility reflected back to us in the world. Um, This is a great time to really dive into that, into music, into art, into movies or culture or whatever it is that moves you and inspires you. Okay, so a really beautiful card for this full moon. Now, for what we are releasing, I pulled the Eight of Cups with Is It True There Is No Other? And this combination of cards is really letting me know that we are ready to let go of emotional ties and emotional bonds that no longer serve us, emotional attachments that are no longer good for us. And I know that when people see this card in a reading, they often jump to like, oh my God, what relationship needs to end? And what I'll say about that is sometimes, yes, we do need to walk away from a relationship or a job or something that is literally draining us emotionally. But sometimes what is needed is more of a boundary, right? It's easy just to say like, this isn't working for me, so I'm going to walk away from it. And then we don't really have to deal with feeling the uncomfortable feelings of being emotionally drained. But what if we also thought, well, this isn't working for me and this is why, and I'm going to set a boundary here and I'm going to communicate this in a healthy way. And I'm going to try to work and communicate uh, within this relationship for a healthier outcome. Now, it is up to you to discern what feels healthy and right for you, obviously. We're not supposed to say in things that are toxic or bad for us in any way or where we are being mistreated. However, I think that this combination of cards is really going to show us where our attachments and illusions have had us kind of wrapped up in this cyclical storyline that has kept us in relation with certain people or certain things for a long period of time. And we're going to see these patterns illuminated. They're going to come into our conscious awareness and we're going to be able to shift and change them. So this is a beautiful time to start thinking about any patterns in relationships that just don't serve you and what it would be like to shift out of that pattern and what your needs are. 
and what it would look like to have them be fulfilled. What are your needs and how can you fulfill them? And what boundaries would you have to set with people, with work, with your time, with your energy in order to make that happen? Okay, you guys, and now the next set of cards I pulled is actually for what we're stepping into. So once we release these emotional attachments, once we really step into this full empress energy, stepping into our power and really seeing beauty reflected back to us in the world, what are we going to be stepping into now? And I pulled the three of pentacles reversed with break the cycle. Okay, so we're definitely breaking old karmic cycles, old patterns that we learned long ago, maybe from childhood, maybe we inherited it from parents or again, through society. Um, And this is an opportunity for us to rebuild. The three of pentacles is really about teamwork. It's about pulling in our resources and working together. And like we can see in society, how individualized things have been, right? It's just like, do it all on your own. Create the American dream. Um, And with the three of pentacles, it's a, a bigger look at doing things for a part of the whole, doing things to serve not just our own selves, but our community in general, and how we have an opportunity to really break cycles around this. And this is huge, you know, if we really look at what's happening right now, in politics, what's happening with this upcoming election. Um, It's a pretty scary thing. It's a pretty scary thing to see this kind of absolute control, um, shutting down the post office and rigging the election and this really kind of authoritative control coming in. And so um, how can we break these cycles? You know, on an individual level, on a personal level, what decisions can we make in order to not only serve us, but to serve their community around us? And I think this is a really beautiful time for us now to, again, become aware of these cycles, of these patterns, and to break them through our action, through our tangible actions of saying, how will this serve me? Yes, but also how will this serve community? There's only so much healing we can do on a personal level. And I do teach and I do truly believe that when we heal ourselves, that it does have a ripple effect on the world around us, right? But we can also take action to help hold space and heal within community. Okay, you guys? So I think this is going to be a really beautiful full moon. I'm really excited to see these cards. Um, Let me know how you're feeling. Let me know how you're doing. Uh, The Pisces energy is very watery very emotional. So make sure to be very gentle with yourself to kind of ride the waves of the feelings and the emotions that come up, but also to step into it with grace, right? And with authority so that um, we're not demonizing ourselves for feeling a certain way, that we're really knowing that emotions come and go, we don't need to attach to them and that the less we resist them, the greater ease that we will find and the quicker they will pass. Okay. Even the difficult ones, right? So just keeping that in mind 
And I thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please support, please share um, in any way that you can. Happy full moon, you guys, and I will see you soon. Take care.